that was a great trip. Yeah, you can clap for that. That's a good trip. It's a good time. Good time. Good morning. If no one has told you good morning, shame on them. Uh, it is a good morning, and I'm glad you're here. My name is Phil. Uh, I get to serve as a youth pastor for today. Um, <laughs> I wasn't supposed to be funny. I was supposed to be sentimental. Aww. You guys are happy about it. Okay. Yeah, it doesn't matter. We're in this series entitled Awkward, talking about evangelism. Um, how to talk to people about Jesus, some of the challenges that go with it, and how to overcome those challenges. And the title of this morning's message is Be Real. Be Real, right? Authenticity is kind of what we're going for here with the title on that. Um, authenticity is something that this current culture, uh, when I say current culture, I, I mean like my, my kind of my generation and younger than me, uh, millennial and on down, uh, really, really value. In fact, that's one of the main things they look for in a person is, is this person authentic? Are they being real with me? Um, <clears throat> you know, that's, that's something that I've seen even within the youth group. It's become more and more apparent that, that the youth don't care at all if the adults in their life are cool, all right? And some of the youth in here, you can amen that. I'm not cool, right? And then most of your leaders aren't either. No amens. I guess we are cool. Awesome. That's good. <laughs> That's good to hear. But actually more and more, like back in the early 2000s, that was something that um, youth pastors strove for and the youth team, they tried to be relevant, tried to be relatable, like I'll speak your lingo and know your stuff and go skating with you and things like that. And all of a sudden, youth are like, dude, we see right through that. Like we, we see right through that. That's not a big value for us. You know what's a big value for us? Are you real with me? Are you a warm personality? And do you all actually care about me? That's two questions youth are asking right now. Are you a warm personality? Do you actually care about me? And one of the big things they're looking for as a spiritual leader is are you authentic in your faith? Can I look at you and say that your faith is legit and here's where I see that in your life? Are you just telling me stuff? Right? Does your life line up with what you're talking about? This search for realness is even to the degree, there's a social media platform out right now called Be Real. Anyone on that? Just raise a hand real quick. Anyone on Be Real? You, you don't have to be ashamed about it. You can go like this, like it's okay, right? The idea of it is you, once a day, you take a picture and it like takes a selfie of you and whatever's like right in front of you. And, uh, and that way there's like no like, Photoshop or nothing like that. It's just, you're being real. This is what's going on in my life. Here you go, right? Be real. I think authenticity has a big place in our evangelism. I really do. I really think it has a big place in our evangelism. And when we're telling people about Jesus this morning, we're going to be in Mark chapter five. If you have your Bible, you'll want that open to Mark chapter five. We'll be in a bit of chapter seven. And we're working toward this main challenge to share how Jesus is changing your life. Share how Jesus is changing your life. That's the big challenge of this morning. And if you wanted to, you could actually, you could probably check out. You could ch check out, but you'd be missing two major parts of this morning, which is the why and the how. The main point is the what. And my prayer is that this congregation, Crossroads Christian Church, would be known for doing the what. But if we miss the why and the how, we're missing a big part of how to do the what, which is sharing Jesus and how he's changing your life with others. Here's the roadmap for the morning. I'm going to tell you a story. It's not my own story. It's a Bible story, but we're going to tell a story, okay? We'll look at one big truth in that story. We'll figure out how to apply it, and then we'll talk about the result. Cool? Cool. Right on. I love it. If you got your Bible, Mark 5, let's start reading. It says this in verse 1. They, they being Jesus and his disciples, went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. 
And when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. We'll come back to that in just a second. The man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore. Not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot. But he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. This is a strong dude. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. So just to set the scene for where we're at here, Jesus is cruising up in this boat. He lands, and the first thing that happens is he looks up this hill, and there's a dude that like pops his head out of a tomb and comes sprinting down the hill, all right? Comes sprinting down to meet him. The text says he was uh, with an evil spirit. We'll find out later what that means. He lived in the tombs, presumably the empty ones that weren't occupied yet. So there's automatically this knowledge that he's also not interacting with anyone in this area because he's an outcast if he's living in tombs. Gentile or Jew, don't matter. If you're living in a tomb, if you're surrounded by dead people all your life, all of a sudden you are unclean and no one is interacting with this dude except presumably to try and chain him and keep him down. I find that interesting. I find that interesting. He's crazy. He's out of control. He's wild. He's strong. No one could bind him. He would cry out and cut himself. He's insane. A professor in college put it this way, though, that kind of changed my perspective on this man. We call him the gathering demoniac. He's also in agony. He's in agony. When I try to picture this guy, sometimes we think of like the strong aspect of him, and this picture comes to mind. Um, if you put the, that's not what we're talking about. It was supposed to be a little comical, right? That's not the kind of strength we're talking about. And I don't mean it disrespectfully, but actually I think this picture is a better image of, of who we're looking at right now. <laughs> Gollum and this dude have a lot in common. Both have voices in their head that aren't, that aren't, that aren't their own, guiding and telling them what to do, and both are incredibly strong beyond their physical appearance. I think this is a much more, and though it's creepy, right? I think this is a better picture of who we're looking at in, pardon, in Mark 5. Automatically, this guy has so many strikes against him. And by all accounts, he's not the person that anyone, even a Gentile, who were the main occupants of this area, would want to be interacting with. We'll continue in verse 6. It says this, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Interesting that you would call him that. Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Cut out, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. I find verses 6 to 8 very interesting for two main reasons. The first is that the demons immediately know who Jesus is. He didn't, it's not like Jesus is walking up, reaching out a hand, saying, Hi, I'm Jesus. They know. They know immediately who Jesus is. And I think they know because he's an opposing force in the battle for this man's soul. And they know that they're outnumbered. They know exactly who he is. James 2.19 says this, that even the demons believe who Jesus is. And guess what they do? They shudder. They shudder. Good is sharply contrasted to evil. And the demons, I think, perhaps see that the battle is not in their favor. The second reason is, is, is we, we've mentioned it, is that they're terrified of him. They're terrified. 
The mere presence of Jesus causes evil to tremble and flee. Let's find out what happens with that knowledge. Verse 9. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? Tell me your name. What's your name? And the voice that comes back isn't from the man, but responds with this. My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. Let's take a step back from this right quick and imagine this from a disciple's standpoint, right? If I'm a disciple of Jesus and I'm rolling up in a boat, I'm landing on the shore and I see a dude come running from some tombs, right? And he, he falls to his knees in front of Jesus and begins shouting at Jesus and begging Jesus to not hurt him. I'm wondering what's going on with this. And then if, if, if Jesus, the guy I've been following as master for some good time now, looks at him and says, what's your name, son? And the name that comes back isn't from the dude, but is from the demons inside of him that said, my name is Legion, for we are many. I don't mean this disrespectfully. I would have a hard time with that. And I would probably pat Jesus on the shoulder and say, you got this, and I'm gonna go stand 500 yards this way. You know what I'm saying? I don't mean it too lightly, but I, that, would be, that would be a lot. I just kind of wonder what the disciples are doing in this moment. Like, are they, are they freaking out? Are they like trying to scoot and Jesus like, get back? Like, I don't know. I don't know. But here's what I do know that happened. And we, we'll talk about it in verse 10, actually. Let's just read that. And he begged Jesus again and again to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. Verse 12. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. Don't torture us. Don't torture us. Send us into the pigs. Instead, he gave them permission. And the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs and the herd, about 2,000 in number, to give you an idea of how many demons we're talking about right quick. Rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. What's going on? When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. And then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region by a simple command. It's just simple, get out. Jesus commands the demons out of the man and sends them into the herd of pigs who in turn go careening off the cliff, off the edge of a cliff and drown in the Sea of Galilee. By the way, that name Legion, I didn't talk about that real quick. That's referring to the military unit number of 5,400 to 6,000. So you can understand the, the depth by which this guy is oppressed. He's completely and totally bound. And by a simple word, Jesus releases that. I wonder if the demon's motivation was so bent on evil and destruction, they would choose to destroy the animal kingdom if they weren't allowed to destroy a human anymore. I can't prove that. I'm just curious about it. Like, why pigs? Like, ah, oh, we can't go in there. Well, let's destroy the animal kingdom. It's better than nothing. I don't know. Regardless, the man who was once bound by evil is instantly free. And verse 15 tells us that when the townspeople come and see the, what the commotion is about, they see him dressed in his right mind. He's whole. He's no longer in anguish from the oppression that once bound him. I love that. That's, that's awesome. That Jesus can do that with the situation at hand. That's the kind of Jesus that you and I believe in. 
The people of the Decapolis initially plead, or I'm sorry, immediately plead and beg Jesus to leave. Their response is not, yay! They're like, get out! Go away! Please get out of here. And I think the reaction of the townspeople is a big deal because all of a sudden they've met the son of God and they're terrified of him. For one, because someone's entire livelihood just careened off a cliff. But more than that, I think they can't fully grasp him or understand what he's about. I think they've met the son of God and they can't fully grasp or understand what he's about and I think it terrifies them. And I gotta tell you, I think there are people in this church with the same story. You've met Jesus. You can't fully understand him. And I'm assuming that to some degree it terrifies you to think about what it might look like to put your faith in someone that you can't fully understand. We're gonna talk about that in just a second. The big truth that I see in this first section, in these first 17 verses, is this. The man gets a new name. The demon-possessed man, and I don't know why, Kurt brought this up, I don't know why we still refer to him as the gathering demoniac. He's not anymore. He gets a new name. He gets a new name. He gets a new identity. Most likely for years of his life, He's been bound by the identity of outcast and filth and crazy guy and inconvenience and avoidable. And all of a sudden, his life is completely transformed by Jesus. There's no halfway transformation here. Did you catch that? I'm sure that there were some moments in of life that he was like, oh, I got to figure out how to walk in this new faith thing. But it's not like Jesus smooths out some rough edges or makes him a better version of himself. He's completely transformed. He's completely made new. He becomes a complete, whole new person. And throughout the Bible, when people meet with Jesus, guess what happens? They become complete, whole new people. Their identity changes. There's a visible, tangible change. So naturally, the question that was burning through my mind as I was reading through this passage is this. Have you submitted yourself wholly and totally to Jesus to allow him to give you a new name? And you might be sitting here in church thinking, man, I've been in church a long time. How dare you ask me? I'm going to ask because that's the question I see. If we get our identity wrong, church, it doesn't shock me why we can't be real with people about our faith. If we get our identity wrong, it doesn't shock me why we struggle to persevere in our faith. Yet I'm afraid that too many Christians haven't submitted themselves wholly and totally to Jesus and taken on a new identity. Your identity is not first and foremost defined by what you do, by what role you play in the family, or by what your hobbies are. At best, those are second or third tier identities. The problem that I've seen is that we allow those to govern and guide our lives in the way that our first tier identity should. Your first tier identity, if you believe in the gospel, is this, that you are a child of the king, period. That's it. Galatians 2.20 says this, and I think it sums it up really well. You are a new creation. Galatians 2.20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in him who loved me and gave himself for me. That's your identity. That's new creation, new life. The man that Jesus met, he got this figured out pretty quick. Pick up with me in verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. 
And Jesus didn't let him, but said, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for them, for him, and the people were amazed. The man is begging Jesus to let him come with him. Like, please, dude, like, I, you know, I've, this has been a rough life and all of a sudden you changed me. Like, can I come with you and hang out with you guys? And you know what Jesus' answer is? No, you can't. I wonder if some of the disciples were like, uh, <clears throat> he's had a rough go of it. Like, I don't think you understand. Like, when people ask to come with us, typically our answer is, yeah, come along. And Jesus is like, I heard the man. I know what he said, and my answer is still no, because I have something better for him to be doing right now. I have a mission for him. He didn't wait for the man to go to Bible study or go to Bible college or know the gospel statement or the Romans road or sit in church for a set amount of time even before starting his mission. You know what he told him? Go home. Go home and tell your family everything I've done for you and how God has had mercy on you. You are not your own anymore. You've been made new. Now go tell your family that and how God has changed you. I think Jesus knew that this man had all he needed in order to share the good news. He had new life. He had real, authentic, new life that left him forever different. He was all in. And I think because he knew his new identity, he just couldn't help himself. He not only went to his family, but it says he started going throughout the whole Decapolis. You can show that picture right quick for me. That's a big region. It's, it's kind of like the, the, the beige brown one there. That's a big region. People from Israel, you can amen that. That's a lot of ground he's covering and he is sharing with anyone and everyone who would listen and catch the last five words of verse 20. All the people were amazed. All the people were amazed. That's a different story than chapter five or from the first part of chapter five. You know, when I'm thinking of this guy, it reminds me of my daughter, Eliza. Um, not the first part of his life, but the second part. <laughs> That's not a good thing to say. Sorry. Um, <clears throat> Eliza's two, right? She loves French fries. And if she was in here right now, she'd be freaking out because dad said French fries. She loves French fries. It's, it's her thing. Like, like she could be, we could be doing something. She could be holding a yogurt stick or like holding a toy, like hanging out with mom. I mentioned fries. Nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. This past Wednesday, we had our last night of youth group and it was sad and it was kind of sentimental and weird. And we were like, oh, what do we do with this? Let's go to Chick-fil-A because that seemed like the most logical thing to do, right? And so backstory on that. When we first came to Crossroads every night after, like every Wednesday, not every night, every Wednesday night after youth group, we'd go to Chick-fil-A and we'd get some chicken and it was cool. Uh, and then we figured out that budgets, budgets and uh, kids exist, those two things. And we said, yeah, no more of that, Right? And, but, but Wednesday night, we were just like, oh, we got to be kind of sentimental. Like, this just doesn't feel complete. Oh, Chick-fil-A. That's it. That's what we need. And so we, you know, Becca went home with the girls. I went to Chick-fil-A, got some, got a 30-count nugget. It was awesome. Uh, and a large fry, right? So that's, that's the thing. That was always the thing. And I come home, and I don't know, like, if Becca prepped her or, or, or what, or she just knew, like, she, like, I opened the door, she smelled it, and was like, whoa, fries. But, like, she comes, and she, like, pulls the bag down, looks in there, and, like, her eyes big as saucers. Man, and she starts running around the house, just running everywhere. Mom, fries, dad, fries, I know. Janie, fries, teddy bear. Like everybody in the house knew that there were fries in the house. And she was pumped. She was pumped about it. Her whole world was getting rocked because of a fried russet potato, right? 
And I gotta tell you, I think that's a little bit about what this guy looks like in chapter five. As I'm imagining him, that's kind of the image that comes to mind of a dude that had his world rocked, his whole life transformed, and he just can't help himself. He can't help but tell anyone and everyone he meets how Jesus changed his life. The application of this sermon is quite simple. First and foremost, you need to evaluate what's been holding you back from sharing with people what Jesus has done for you. What's the beef? Like, what's the thing? What's the thing that's been holding you back? Is it fear? Is it, I don't know my own story? Is it, I, you know, I don't know, I don't understand the depth of how I've been saved? I don't know, what is it? Evaluate that. Spend some time. Process that. Dig deep into your brain. What's been holding you back? You need to evaluate what's been holding you back from being real about your faith. I've heard it said this way before from a church up in KCK. The Great Commission is not the great option. It's pithy, but I like it. The Great Commission is not the great option. So stop making it an option. Sharing our faith is by default conjoined to our salvation. They aren't separate. If we believe in Jesus, Matthew 28 is written to you and me. And because of that transformation then, that Jesus has worked in your life, share what he's done for you and how he's had mercy on you. It might be helpful, perhaps, to talk about my life before Jesus, here's how I met Jesus, and here's my life after. That might be very helpful to figure out those three steps. You know, you know what I've started doing in my personal life? is just making a mental note of how I've been seeing Jesus show up in my life. And every chance I get that I think it's a worthwhile moment to tell somebody, I'll say, hey, here's a real Jesus that's impacting my life. Can I tell you about him? This is something that happened the other day. Can I tell you about it? Can I tell you about it? I've seen his transformation in my life. I mean, this is, you, you know me, like this was me beforehand. Look, then this happened and here I am now. Look at that. Be real. Live out the identity of the gospel in your life. If we truly grasp what it is that we've been saved from and how Jesus has had mercy on us, I think we'd be way more apt to look like this dude from Mark 5 and who we're sharing with and the vigor with which we're sharing. If you've been in any of my small groups, I just mentioned it, but, but maybe that's just a question you, you need to ask yourself. I ask this in, in my small groups. How have you seen Jesus working in your life? Have you seen Jesus working in your life? Just ask yourself that question. Ask other people that question. Want to talk about the result? Let's talk about the result. I like the result. The result of this passage is cool. In verse 20, we mentioned it, but the people are no longer afraid. But instead, they're amazed at the transformation that Jesus offered. They noticed. It's undeniable. Right after this story in Mark 5, Jesus got, he goes and does some other stuff. We're not going to get into it right now. He actually comes back at the end of Mark chapter 7. If you want to flip there for me real quick, you can do that. Verse 31 says this. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of, guess what? The Decapolis. He's back. Woohoo! There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged him to place his hand on the man. Wait a second. Last time we were begging Jesus about something, we were asking him to leave. Not quite the response I expected. Jesus heals the dude. They're overcome with amazement. He's done everything well, they said. Really? He's done everything well? What about the pigs? He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Check this out, 8-1. 
During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, basically, I have compassion on these people. We're going to feed them. 4,000 people. What changed? Because last time I checked in Mark 5, we got a whole crowd of people from the Decapolis begging him, get out. And all of a sudden, a couple chapters later, they're begging him to heal and to stay. 4,000 of them. What changed? Can I tell you what I think changed? I think one dude met Jesus and had his life transformed and couldn't shut up about it. I mean, I know that's what he did. He says that's what he did. I think that's what changed, though. People knew what he was like before he met Jesus, and all of a sudden they're hearing and seeing a man, a new man, pardon, after Jesus. I don't think we can, can, we can sit here and pretend that our testimony has no power because I'm reading something completely different. Sharing your faith does not have to be awkward. Sharing your faith can be as simple as this is real life for me and this is, I just want to tell you what Jesus has been doing in my life. Imagine with me right quick the people in your life who need Jesus are skeptical of him. Just imagine that real quick. Something I've heard before is this from many individuals that are opposed to Jesus is this. I can't see him. I can't tangibly grasp my mind around him. And my response is, I know. I can't either. I've, I haven't shook his hand and had a conversation like this. Like it just hasn't happened. But you know what I have seen? I've seen him and other people. I've seen other people's life be so radically transformed. The only explanation is that someone who's bigger than themselves and bigger than you and me interfered and his name is Jesus. That's what I've seen. Imagine the impact you have the potential to have through Christ if you were to open your mouth and simply share how you've seen Jesus working in your life on a regular basis. One of two things will happen. They'll either, well, one of three. They'll either bear it and say, cool, shake your hand, go back to work at their desk. They'll either, they might tell you to shut up about it. Or maybe, just maybe, they too will be amazed at what Jesus has done. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. I thank you for the clarity with which you guide us and lead us. Father, I pray that you would give this church courage and boldness beyond their understanding. That we would be a people with real identities, new identities, and that we would be able to share with people what that looks like in real life. Praise things in Jesus' name.